Welcome to the Global Hemophilia Report, a podcast led by science, curiosity, and storytelling. Produced by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and supported through advertisements by Sanofi. I'm Patrick James Lynch, your host and resident hemophilia patient, and this is episode four of the Global Hemophilia Report. Today's topic, bone and joint health. It's a big one, and we dive in right after this quick message. Sanofi is committed to bringing new perspectives and bold innovations to the global hemophilia community. Learn more about how Sanofi is breaking barriers and supporting the community at sanofihemophilia.com. Drink more milk. Even as a kid with severe hemophilia, that was just about the only message on bone health that I absorbed growing up. Drink more milk. Great marketing on the part of the milk industry, here in the US anyway, but certainly a very, very small piece of the bone health pie, so to speak. Bone and joint health or musculoskeletal health is a top consideration for patients with and treaters of patients with hemophilia, as hemophilic bleeding has a direct and profound impact on bone and joint health. And as this episode will soon make clear, drink more milk is hardly the primary message that we should be communicating about how we keep our bones and joints strong. In our last episode, we covered prophylaxis, highlighting its successes, its shortcomings, and the areas of it for further research. Despite the intensive study of prophylaxis to date and the significant progress that has been made, recent studies suggest that although the overall musculoskeletal health of persons with hemophilia has significantly improved thanks to prophylaxis, the goal of attaining a level of musculoskeletal health comparable to that of the general population without hemophilia has still not been achieved. Furthermore, the impact of prophylaxis has been uneven across hemophilia populations. The promise of greater physical activity free of hemorrhage has not been entirely fulfilled, and the aspirational goal for people with hemophilia to have completely normal joints and musculoskeletal health has not yet been achieved. That leads us to the questions driving this episode on bone and joint health. Is the goal for people with hemophilia to have normal musculoskeletal health? Is that what we're seeking? Is that even possible? And if so, what do we need to do to get from here to there? What investigations into the future of detecting and monitoring bleeds are currently underway? How might further study of imaging technologies like MRI and ultrasound help us better understand the activity inside a joint Are there biomarkers being explored for how they might teach us more about joint bleeding, especially subclinical or microbleeding? And how do patients think about musculoskeletal health in the context of their overall quality of life? We address all of that and more on today's episode, which features another impressive list of contributors, starting with Dr. Suchitra Acharya, a pediatric hematologist working out of Long Island, New York. So I would like to start off by briefly addressing the anatomy of a joint so that everyone has a better understanding. So the knee joint, it's what we call a ball and socket joint. You have this capsule surrounding the joint. This is the cartilage. 
and there's a thin area which we call the synovium. And the function of the synovium is to secrete synovial fluid in order to lubricate the joints. Now, when you develop a joint bleed or what we refer to as hemarthrosis, what happens is the blood occupies all the space. The bleeding comes from the synovial membrane. So the cartilage and the bone itself are relatively avascular. This is Dr. Amy Dunn, a pediatric hematologist and the director of the Hemophilia Treatment Center at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. The bleeding comes from the synovial membrane, enters into the joint as those components of blood enter the joint, a couple different things happen. The white cells lead to inflammatory changes. And there's release of what we call cytokines as well as hydroxyl radicals, and both cytokines and hydroxyl radicals damage the cartilage. So that's part of the issue is the white cells. The red cells, as they break down, the iron is in the center of the red blood cell. When iron is inside a red blood cell, the body is very happy to have the iron there. Once it's outside the red blood cell, Iron is a heavy metal, and the body does not like it. So it causes inflammation. It stimulates the synovium, this lining, to actually proliferate and hypertrophy. And as you have more and more bleeds, this thickening actually becomes even worse. So instead of being a thin um, membrane, usually only one or two cell layers thick in a normal synovial membrane, that membrane gets thicker and thicker and thicker. And as the synovium proliferates, that triggers the process of angiogenesis or new vessel development. And that's how you see these new vessels that develop in the synovium. And if you look at that under a microscope, tons of tiny little blood vessels growing out into all these fronds of tissue. And this stage we refer to as synovitis in the hemophilic joint disease arthropathy process. Once you develop synovitis, you bleed not only because of hemophilia, you bleed because of the local rupture of these vessels, which tend to be very fragile because, you know, they are not supposed to be there. They're pathological, and so they rupture more easily. And as this progresses, as you bleed more and more into the joint, thickened synovium actually now starts causing articulate uh, cartilage damage. So you have a combination of the cartilage structure isn't quite right, and then anytime that structure of cartilage is damaged, then the actual forces of gravity and walking and compressing the cartilage just compound the damage. And so eventually that the cartilage just gets thinner and thinner and, and ultimately sort of wears away. Finally, there's no cartilage. This is all bone on bone. And this is basically arthritis. By this stage, short of joint replacement, basically, there's no other treatment that's available. It's a pretty unique phenomenon. You don't really see the type of arthropathy that patients with hemophilia get. Well, lucky me. And I don't know about you, but I found that walkthrough of the progression of joint disease and hemophilia to actually be quite helpful. It made clear some of the uniquenesses of hemophilic arthropathy. In particular, something I find notable is the development of these new fragile blood vessels in the synovium and how those fragile vessels then become easy targets for more bleeding and more bleeding and more bleeding. In fact, the development of these new fragile blood vessels is one area that is currently being researched to see if there are ways in which better understanding vascular remodeling, as it's called, can help us better monitor, track, and understand the progression of joint disease related to hemophilic bleeding. 
We'll hear more about vascular remodeling and other areas of research into monitoring bone and joint health a bit later in the program. But let's first take a look at a couple of the most common tools being used to monitor and track bone and joint health, beginning with magnetic resonance imaging, more commonly referred to by its acronym, MRI. I think that MRI right now is the most sensitive imaging. Dr. Marilyn Manko-Johnson, the director of the Hemophilia Treatment Center out of Denver, Colorado. She served as a content advisor and contributor on episode three covering prophylaxis and does so again here on episode four. There are two uses of MRI. One is to population application, and that is to look at which therapy is superior. So if you have a group of six or eight-year-olds who were on a, a, a factor eight mimetic since birth, and you have a population of the same age who are on a long-acting factor eight product from birth, you can then, at the equivalent age, look at the outcomes on MRI. And I think that's a very sensitive way to say, is there or is there not overall population difference in outcome? Then the other way would be uh, if you have a patient with hemophilia and chronic pain, and if you're uh, thinking that chronic pain may be related to subclinical joint damage, then it is important to get uh, a, a good imaging and MRI to see if you have objective evidence this is a hemophilia-related damage or this is is not. So I think they're important on both population levels and individual levels. Dr. Manko Johnson referred to subclinical joint damage, which is sometimes referred to as microbleeding, and you will hear one contributor later in the program call it silent bleeding. It's got a number of names. Obviously, this is something that will be coming up quite a bit, so let's pause for a moment to define what exactly subclinical or microbleeding or silent bleeding is and address how it pertains to this discussion of imaging and monitoring strategies. We've heard about this concept of microbleeds for probably now a decade and a half, and this refers to asymptomatic or subclinical leakage of microscopic amounts of blood into a joint, and that's been hypothesized to contribute to joint deterioration in the absence of clinical hemarthrosis. It's currently unclear if microbleeding actually occurs in patients with hemophilia, although there is no evidence that it does not occur. So we just have to assume that it occurs. And how do we detect that? On MRI, we actually see these blood breakdown products called hemosiderin, which are easily detectable in the synovium. Hemosiderin, it's worth pointing out, is a protein compound that stores iron. Now, the detection of iron in the synovium as an indicator of bleeding is an example of what are called biomarkers. Biomarkers are broadly defined as biological substances, or markers, whose presence indicates some type of biological event is taking place, and it often relates to disease progression or dysfunction of some kind. In this example, Dr. Acharya is referencing how iron in the synovium can serve as a biomarker of joint bleeding. And so if you do detect hemosiderin on MRI, does it mean that now this joint is on its way to developing more damage to the synovium as well as cartilage and bone? Is this going to lead to further uh, joint disease progression? I think currently that's the assumption. So we typically tend to intensify prophylaxis, but I don't think we have the evidence that if there is hemosiderin in a joint, if that's the actual route that we need to take. To restate Dr. Acharya's point, there is not, yet, 
a body of evidence to support definitively the characterization of hemosiderin as a biomarker for bleeding. More on biomarkers later, but let's get back to imaging and specifically MRIs with some comments now from Global Hemophilia Report Episode 3 and 4 advisor contributor and pediatric hematologist from the Netherlands, Dr. Kathleen Fisher. I agree with Marilyn, MRIs currently are best imaging modality, but the problem with MRI is its accessibility. The time it takes to make all these scans. It does take a long time. Patients don't like to sit there, but I know that MRI has been able to increase their acquisition speed such that neonatal brain MRIs are being able to be performed on newborn babies without sedation, so without breathing artifacts. I do think that on an individual basis, MRI is very important. If you have a child on emesisumab with additional factor eight for treatment and he complains of pain and you do an MRI and it shows a orthopedic problem, then you say, there's no evidence of hemophilia damage. There's no evidence that your hemophilia regimen is at fault. We have to approach this normal childhood orthopedic problem. In the joint outcome study at age six, we saw very subtle evidence of cartilage thinning or subchondral changes did predict uh, worse outcomes at age 18. So I have gained more confidence in early subtle changes on MRI. We did a study where we also did MRIs with five years intervals and, and we saw very logically that synovial hypertrophy was associated with cartilage and bone damage five years later, which is totally logical, of course. But the other thing is that they ch constantly change the technique <laughs> from the MRI and then you have a new machine and then the, they have to write a new protocol and I hope that will be standardized and maybe they will be able to make a simple one, you know, like the handheld ultrasound which is also a simplification of something that is very technical and, and, and very difficult. MRI clearly has its value as a longitudinal assessment tool. And as Dr. Fisher points out, it has its drawbacks too. It's slow, it's expensive, and there are some standardization concerns. Dr. Fisher mentions at the end there, the other most common form of imaging that's used to track and monitor joint health, and that is ultrasound imaging. While MRIs rely on magnets to produce 3D images of the inner structures of the body, an ultrasound, on the other hand, uses high-frequency sound waves to produce images, a different method, which logically picks up on different things. Ultrasound is a, an excellent tool to answer the question, is there a bleed? Hello, uh, my name is Dr. Andrea Doria. I am a radiologist, a professor and vice chair of radiology at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, and I am part of the University of Toronto in Canada. Dr. Doria's insights, it's worth highlighting, come from the perspective of a radiologist with specific expertise in hemophilia, and she is a proponent of musculoskeletal ultrasound. Musculoskeletal ultrasound is a technique in which we have a transducer that is a device that usually is placed close to the joint of a patient, in this case, a patient with hemophilia. And then the machine, which is the ultrasound scanner, generates some mechanical waves. And then depending on, I think, the density, we have some imaging. And what the uh, clinicians, radiologists uh, look at are the images that are generated in the machine. And based on these images, we can have an idea of how the joint is inside. 
which is something extremely important. The ultrasound is very sensitive towards bleed detection in the joint. Hi, my name is Annette von Dregalski. I'm a professor of clinical medicine and the director of the Hemophilia and Thrombosis Treatment Center at the University of California, San Diego. I'm an adult hematologist. Ultrasound is actually more sensitive than the MRI. It can detect up to three to five milliliters of joint fluid. And by the character of the echogenicity of that fluid, one can tell if it's blood or not. That is not easily feasible with MRI. You can measure synovial hypertrophy in tenths of millimeters. You can measure cartilage thickness in tenths of millimeters and the same for osteochondral alterations. It's very sensitive. Ultrasound is very good for assessment of superficial structures, not very good for assessment of internal structures. So just at, in terms of the anatomy of a joint, usually the uh, synovium, which is a membrane that really overlies the joint and that can bleed, uh, is usually superficial. So when you have a bleed into the joint, usually this bleed is superficial. So ultrasound is an excellent tool for us to assess that. You know, ultrasound, I find it very useful. It's my favorite toy. One of the most useful things is direct feedback on what is happening in the joint because the patient and the moms can see. That's the, the, the beautiful thing about doing ultrasound on children. They can clearly see the difference. They can see the fluid. They can see the synovial hypertrophy. They can see cartilage sitting. They can see it. It really helps also in the follow-up of bleeding that you have to treat longer than you think because it's not normal yet. And it helps them also to restrain themselves from restarting the, the football and everything. I want to emphasize what Kathleen said about the indication of duration of therapy. We have found from both muscle and joint bleeds that the blood is residual for way longer than we thought. And I would say we're treating for weeks and weeks based on ultrasound resolution and we're not getting rebleeds. So I think ultrasound has actually therapeutically prevented or limited rebleeding into muscles and joints by directing our duration of therapy. Wow. Ultrasound indicating to clinicians like Dr. Manko Johnson that we should be treating bleeding for longer than we'd previously thought is just one example of why this image-based monitoring strategy is crucial for effectively managing patients with hemophilia. But is ultrasound practical? We heard Dr. Fisher's reasonable criticisms of, amongst other things, the time needed to perform MRIs. Does ultrasound suffer from the same kind of challenges associated with practical use? With the ultrasound, when I started 10 years ago, one had to have these clunky big ultrasound machines and it was difficult to get them procured, you can imagine, and radiology was involved and what have you. Then we went to laptop ultrasound, sort of adjusting to what rheumatology does at point of care. And now what I use in clinic is handheld devices. So you plug them into your iPhone or into your Android. It's a cloud-based app you download, you can save your data there. It's HIPAA compliant. It's very intuitive in terms of maneuvering these with swiping and it's all presets. It's really for the point of care, non-radiology in clinic use. And so that's easily accessible now and available 
to everyone. I think that speaks to the educational and the interventional role of ultrasound. Ultrasound is much more of an interventional therapy than we thought it would be. The subtle increase in fluids, subtle, very subtle thickening of the synovium as early changes are extremely helpful to indicate that maybe our treatment is not optimal. So I think ultrasound is very helpful. However, no study to date for any kind of scoring system or for any kind of measurement system as we use it has shown the utility, clinical utility over time. In other words, we can measure and score a lot of things, but studies are lacking to show that an intervention based on these findings makes a difference. And it does a disservice to the ultrasound that is such a sensitive tool. It would be good to have studies towards the utility of ultrasound in the management of chronic long-term joint disease. In spite of its anecdotal benefits, as Dr. Von Dragalski points out, data is needed to provide evidence of ultrasound's value in modifying intervention strategies. So that's one area of study for ongoing clinical research pertaining to how we monitor bone and joint health. And we'll hear about a few others right after this quick break. Globally, approximately 75% of people living with hemophilia have limited or no access to treatment. Sanofi is committed to helping address this public health crisis. In 2020, Sanofi, together with Sobi, extended their support for the WFH Humanitarian Aid Program, fulfilling their 2014 pledge to donate up to 1 billion IUs of Factor for humanitarian use over a 10-year period. This is the single largest donation of hemophilia factor therapy and has already provided treatment for more than 17,300 people in 43 countries, an important first step to providing a sustainable supply of therapy to those in need. To learn more about Sanofi's global commitment to the hemophilia community, visit SanofiHemophilia.com. Welcome back. Nothing like a cold glass of milk to quench the thirst between segments. And who knows, maybe I did just make my bones a little bit stronger. In the previous segment, we heard about imaging. Specifically, we heard about the uses and characteristics of MRI and ultrasound. We also touched on biomarkers like hemosidrin and vascular remodeling, which could be helpful tools in detecting joint bleeding, but for which there currently is not study-backed data to support. Given that imaging tools like MRI and ultrasound are, like all tools, limited in what they can provide, what studies are currently taking place to substantiate the use of various biomarkers? Dr. Von Dragalski kicks off the next segment with discussion on studies into vascular remodeling. Where we are standing right now, there are several publications investigating vascular remodeling as a biomarker for joint bleeding tendencies. 
because joint bleeding goes hand in hand with vascular remodeling. So there are good human studies and several mouse studies that now show that there is a way to perhaps detect bleeding as a proof of principle with these markers. There are longitudinal studies in patients with hemophilia where um, bleeding is confirmed directly by musculoskeletal ultrasound or other objective means of imaging. And then at the time, there are blood samples taken and biomarkers measured. And so one can really discriminate between true bleeding episodes versus perhaps painful episodes, but not associated with bleeding, and then see what's happening at the time in the blood in terms of markers that reflect joint bleeding. And then one can take another sample when the joint has calmed down or when the patient is at a pain-free interval and so on and so forth. So that is something to follow longitudinally. But this is just one example. There are systemic biomarkers spilled into the blood at the time of bleeding. And there are other biomarkers unrelated to blood. Here, doctors Manko Johnson and Fisher continue the biomarker conversation with discussion on bone biomarkers. Marilyn, I think, has measured more than we have. We, we have identified uh, a set of markers and we are measuring them in the patients. But I think Marilyn has already done some of this research, so I'd really like to hear this. We've not submitted for publication yet, but what we've looked at is we looked at CTX1, which is a marker of osteoclastic bone breakdown. And these are not just with bone destruction, but when you're actively growing and you're remodeling your bone and making bone, you are also breaking it down. Osteopotegrin, which is a bone synthesis marker, and then osteocalcin. That's the bone glob protein. It's both in a carboxylated and non-carboxylated form. If any of those details went over your head, don't worry, you're not alone. The larger point is that there are a few different types of bone biomarkers that researchers like Dr. Manko Johnson are studying. But looking at these markers from early childhood through about age 70, we have found that uh, comparing normal healthy individuals to individuals on factor VIII prophylaxis with hemophilia A compared to heme Libra prophylaxis with hemophilia A, that the only time we really see a difference is during that very rapid growth uh, during early adolescence. Then with osteopotegrin, which is the bone synthesis osteoblastic marker, we see slightly higher levels in the adults with severe hemophilia. But we're finding that there is no difference between uh, heme Libra prophylaxis and standard half-life factor VIII prophylaxis. And the only difference from normal seems to be during that rapid bone growth of adolescence with osteocalcin and then with osteoprotegrin during adult life. I would like to ask Marilyn about her biomarkers because I think from a theoretical point of view, I would say biomarkers of synovium and inflammation and cartilage are probably much more interesting than the bone biomarkers. So did you consider those two? You may, probably you did. We could do that. Why I didn't think they were as interesting initially is we really don't see a lot of synovial inflammation. Yeah, but in, if in you- In children, in, but we should look at the biomarkers and see if they're biochemically somewhat- uh, Exactly. Somewhat because yeah, you don't, if you don't see it, maybe you know it's the start. If you have subclinical right. bleeding, that the the synovium is at work, isn't it? We looked at these because we looked at them in individuals not on prophylaxis and found that they were grossly abnormal. 
And so we then felt obliged to look at the effect of factor A prophylaxis, which seemed to normalize them tremendously. And then we looked at uh, what was the effect of Hume Libra, and it seemed to be fairly equivalent. You know, maybe a little better, but certainly no worse than factor VIII prophylaxis. But you're right, the next, the next level would be going to synovial markers. Having discussed how biomarkers are being studied as potential diagnostic and predictive tools for monitoring joint hemorrhage and arthropathy, and having also covered how imaging through MRI and ultrasound is used to monitor joint health and track the effectiveness of intervention strategies such as prophylaxis, let's now shift into discussion of the tools that enable us to assess actual joint function starting with one tool that we first discussed in the previous episode, the Hemophilia Joint Health Score. The Hemophilia Joint Health Score is a physical exam performed by a trained physiotherapist, which scores a number of domains, including joint swelling, muscle strength or atrophy, joint range of motion, axial alignment, and, and, and crepitance. Although crepitance and chronicity of swelling have been recently found to be not as helpful as predictors and, and are being dropped from the score. And this is used to rate the, the function, which could be very different from from the structural appearance on, on, on imaging. Dr. Manko Johnson, what makes the hemophilia joint health score a valuable tool for assessing joint function and overall musculoskeletal health? I think the uh, strength of this is that it, it does predict uh, future in that individuals who are worsening tend to worsen more than individuals who are not worsening. And we all have individuals with hemophilia who are on full prophylaxis, who engage in a lot of healthy activity, who report no bleeding, but yet we find uh, changes and progressive changes in the HHS. So I do think it is, it's not a gold standard, but it is another piece of information in the armamentarium of ongoing joint damage of potentially from unrecognized or unrecognizable subclinical bleeding. And does the HJHS have any notable limitation or weakness? The tremendous weakness of the HJHS is that it's there are two weaknesses. One is that a complete exam takes a lot of time, and uh, physiotherapists are not often given that enough time in their clinic to do it, and so they either take shortcuts or don't do all of the patients because uh, it's just very, very lengthy. But the biggest weakness, I believe, is that consistency among physiotherapists. In our center, where we've been publishing this for over 30 years, joint physical exams, we have therapists who are as good as ultrasound and as good as MRI in examining the thickness of synovium and finding slight swelling. And I think the two most important predictors in a young child in early prophylaxis are early swelling of the joints and the gait. There are many centers who report zero HHS scores in children on prophylaxis. And I think that if you are not very critical and very sensitive in being able to pick up a little swelling, then your exam will be less sensitive and you will only pick up more advanced joint disease. The, the problem is standardization and also the subtlety. Just what Marilyn is saying, if you have an adult physio who is looking at young adults or adults, you will not worry about slight swelling will not score it. And if you have a pediatric physio who looks at the ankle with a magnifying glass, so to speak, and it's very precise, he will say, but there's a slight change here and there's a slight of change of gait. And any physical exam by anyone, no matter what you do, is 
very difficult. And what I personally find so amazing is the discrepancies that we sometimes see between function and imaging and also the surprise that you some, sometimes see changes on even a simple x-ray where you don't find anything else. And I think, what am I missing? So I think a, a very uh, fruitful area of uh, research that I, I see that we have data for and should do is comparing the HJHS with ultrasound findings. And it's not that you would do it instead of, of an ultrasound, but I think the gait and the especially the ankle uh, and, and knee swellings in young children are very worrisome for some unrecognized bleeding. Both doctors Manko Johnson and Fisher referred to gait assessments. Gait assessment or analysis is basically the study of how a body moves, usually by walking from one place to another. So how is gait assessment data being collected? How is gait assessment data being used? And what research into gait assessment is currently underway? Uh, personally, I have some difficulties with the gait assessment as a, I, I kind of categorize it as boys with their toys. And because you have to have this lab and it's fancy and expensive and it takes time. Gate assessment is part of the HJHS and without any fancy equipment. And we, we are systematically collecting the data. We have HJHS serially on hundreds of patients, ultrasounds, I don't know, maybe a hundred. We really got behind during COVID. It's also difficult to standardize because in, in children you have all these variation in physical development. Some of them move like very fluid and very mobile and you have others who are very stiff or they are fast or they are slow in their physical development. There are uh, two uh, assessments. One assessment is laterality and we should be symmetrical whether we are lax or tight or whether we're coordinated or hypotonic we should be symmetrical and one goal of our gate lab is to look at early asymmetry and try to correct it with precision physical therapy. In terms of the developmental issues, I think that they might impact on hemophilia. So a child who is very tight, if that's not addressed and, and given stretching exercises, or a child who's very hypotonic, hypotonic kids don't perform well in sports and, and they tend not to do very much and then they don't get as strong and then they don't have as much protection around their joints. So I think natural physiology and hemophilia can, can uh, act upon each other and affect each other. Are you using GATE as an outcome assessment? Or are you using it to guide your treatment? So Dr. Beth Warren has an NIH grant to first uh, look at gait assessments in individuals with hemophilia uh, versus normals, and then to look at prospectively in hemophilia versus prospective bleeding to see if the abnormalities in the gait actually predict bleeding. And then the third step would be to add the corrective physiotherapy and see if that then re reduces uh, the, the amount of bleeding you have. So it's a staged procedure. Wonderful. Hi, my name is Beth Warren and I am a pediatric hematologist specializing in bleeding and clotting problems. And my research is focused on trying to better understand how movement patterns can predict or be affected by bleeding. Dr. Warren, where is some of the most innovative work in movement analysis and gait assessment currently taking place? The most refined ways of measuring gait and movement are actually in elite athletes who are trying to optimize their pitching or whatever, and also in cerebral palsy, so uh, patients who have neurologic problems that affect how their muscles develop. So the kind of the state of the art of motion analysis 
is in those two groups. Um, but there are a lot of different concepts that can be applied to hemophilia. So logically, if you have a joint bleed, there's probably some force in your joint that is causing the bleed to happen. And if we apply the principles of the motion analysis used in these other fields, then we can calculate like, oh, this is how much force is developing in this joint. Practically, so there have been a lot of publications with things that just look at the timing of steps and finding that people with severe joint damage can have like uneven steps or can walk more slowly, but that gets mostly at timing and doesn't get to forces. So these other techniques, the way it actually like logistically works, you put reflective markers on certain body landmarks and then the participants do activities over force plates, kind of similar to how they do animation, only you add in forces. You track these markers and from that you can get like the angles that your joints are during different activities. And then you can combine that with force data to actually estimate like, oh, the force on the knee while you're doing this thing is higher on the right than the left, and maybe that's a risk factor for bleeding. In summary, what would you say is the goal of this work that you're doing in the Gate Assessment Lab, Dr. Warren? My pie-in-the-sky vision is that we could figure out from the study that we're doing in the motion lab, like these are the most, these are like the highest risk activities or the the motions that can best predict bleeding. Um, and then we could do like a physical therapy evaluation to help people decide like, okay, if you optimize this way that you move, that will prevent bleeding when you're playing ultimate frisbee or soccer or whatever. Research into gait assessment, just like research into biomarkers and research into imaging, are all important components of enhancing our abilities to detect and monitor hemophilic bleeding and ensuing joint damage. However, as we began a small discussion around vitamin D deficiency, Dr. Manko Johnson shared an observation that speaks to a larger cultural challenge to progress. I, I have a very big concern with the American culture that activity is massively decreased over the last two uh, generations. 10, 20 years ago, parents were telling me that they were very worried to let their children go out and play alone because that there might be stalkers who would kidnap them or harm them. And uh, I think this increased with the 24-hour news, cable news cycles, that you're constantly hearing about every child everywhere in the world who got abducted. And so I started asking my parents if they would let their child walk to school or or um, play in the park very close to home without them and and they were saying no that they were frightened that this was not safe so I have five children and four have children and I asked them and do you let your children just go out and play without you being right there and they said no it's not safe and I thought like in my childhood, I spent uh, the entire day outdoors, except for school, playing and coming home when it was dinner time. So in, in the U.S. last week, I mean, I was like appalled. Colorado passed a law that said it is not automatically child abuse if you let your child walk to school or ride a bike without the parent being there. And, I, and this meant that not only could some people think it was child abuse, but it was routinely 
felt to be child abuse, and that parents were being prosecuted if they were one of the few uh, uh, libertarians who let their children go outside without a direct supervision. I think this has enormous implications on social development, on physical health, and definitely on bone mineralization. So parents uh, drive their child to a soccer practice where they practice for an hour and drive them back. Well, that is good, but normally children are moving and bouncing and jumping all day long, and parents can only tolerate so much of this being inside the house. So given this as a cultural problem, I'm worried about a whole generation of adults, men and women, having osteoporosis and poor bone health because during those critical bone building years, they were, they were sitting in front of a screen. As this discussion is making clear, there are many considerations when it comes to monitoring bone and joint health. But what do all of these tools and all of this data and research ultimately mean for patients? How do patients think about their bone and joint health when considering their overall health-related quality of life? Our final segment of this episode explores that topic, and we hear directly from one patient right after this quick break. Did you know that nearly 80% of bleeds in hemophilia occur in the joints? Joint bleeds are the most common type of bleed and can cause lasting damage as well as increase the risk of recurrent bleeds. Sanofi is committed to breaking barriers for patients, including providing resources and education to support joint health. Visit hemejointhealth.com to see how routine, objective assessment might benefit patients' joint health for the long term. Again, that's heme, as in H-E-M, jointhealth.com. This site is intended for U.S. healthcare professionals. Welcome back. And allow me to introduce you to Tommy Russomano. Tommy and I have a lot in common. We both have severe factor eight deficiency. We're both married with young children and pushing 40 years of age. And we both have, I'll just say troublesome left ankles. So how does Tommy think about musculoskeletal health? How does his functional health impact his overall quality of life? Well, here's Tommy. My name is Tommy Russomano. I am a severe hemophiliac. I have factor eight and I live in Boston with my wife and two awesome kids. My joint health, it's, it's okay. If you ask my orthopedic surgeon, he'd say it's absolutely horrible. Uh, but you're asking me, I'm almost 40. They're in about as good a shape as I think a 40 year old hemophilia patient could be in. My left elbow was always a target joint as a young kid. So I have about 30 to 40% loss of a extension in my left elbow. And then my left ankle was always a bad one too, from like teenage years until early adulthood. So it's not great, but it could be worse. On bad days, my ankles are, are humming. I wake up and it takes a real long time for them to break in, especially my left ankle, sometimes upwards of an hour. And that's like working through a lot of pain, a lot of grinding, funny noises coming from the joint that freak me out a little bit sometimes, to be honest. My daughter is always asking me at the playground, like, why aren't you chasing me? Or why can't we run around a little more? If I do run, it ends up in uh, a tough day the next day. Functionally, I, I can do a decent amount. I can walk a lot. Sometimes I pay for it, but it is, I am, I am fairly functional despite the amount of damage I've had in the joints. Like I said, I have kids. I started thinking about 
if my joints are in the condition they're in now in my mid to late 30s, what does that look like in mid to late 40s, mid to late 50s, you know, so on and so on. I already feel not a ton, but some limitations in what I can do with the kids because of my bone or joint health. So like, is that going to get worse? Am I not going to be able to walk my daughter down the aisle at her wedding? Little things that just wonder, like, are my joints going to keep deteriorating because of the damage that's already been done? So that that's what I'm worried about. Are things just going to keep getting worse? And is there a way to stop that? Or is there a way to, to mitigate that now before it happens? Tommy's story helps provide insight into what a 40-year-old with hemophilic arthropathy thinks about and experiences as it relates to bone and joint health. He also brought up two things that we haven't really discussed yet on this episode, the prevalence of pain and the degree to which pain or joint disease is interfering in his life, for example, by not allowing him to run around with his daughter. So how do we account for these lived experience components of joint disease when it comes to detection and monitoring of joint health? And what tools do we have for measuring the impact of joint disease on health-related quality of life? My opinion is that it, it truly depends on what are you expecting to get out of, of measuring something? What is your purpose for measurement? Hi, my name is Tyler Buckner. I am an associate professor of hematology at the University of Colorado, and I work at our hemophilia and thrombosis center. It's worth mentioning that Dr. Buckner is also a researcher studying pain assessment tools in men with hemophilia. There are aspects of health and life that are unique or at least different enough for someone living with hemophilia that is impacted by a hemophilia-specific treatment. And in that kind of case, then a hemophilia-specific tool that asks about how is your life impacted by how often you have to give infusions or how long it takes to mix your factor or how long it takes to warm up, that tool is, is likely going to be your best bet. Measuring health-related quality of life is difficult because we, we all know that we have de developed several disease-specific tools. We have also used generic tools and the generic tools perform quite well, but we all think we need the specific tools because we, there are some aspects which are hemophilia-specific. On the other hand, if your interest is more focused, let's say, on comparing someone who's living with hemophilia to someone who lives with rheumatoid arthritis, then you really wouldn't be able to use a hemophilia-specific tool. So a tool like PROMISE, which is the Patient Reported Outcomes Measurement Information System, is generic, which means that it, it is not specific to any disease or condition. And so anyone can answer those questions and generate a score. And when you get a score from PROMISE, it tells you where you fall relative to the average for that concept. So if you're measuring pain interference, for instance, the number that comes out tells you, do I have the same amount of pain interference as the average person in the US or more or less? How far away from the average am I? Do I have more pain than say 95% of people in the country or, or just 80% of the people in the country? So you can get a sense of that from those numbers. I think as a rare disease, it's often helpful for our, our patients to understand where they exist on that spectrum of, of experience. 
But what do these promise scores actually mean? If I learn that I have more pain than 80% of people in the United States, okay, but so what? Attaching meaning to one of these scores is key for pain interference specifically. That score that comes out really matters only to that person and it's relative to their goals. And so if their goals for their own pain management are related to a specific function, let's say I would like to be able to go to work and not have to miss work because my joints hurt, we can try to be as specific as possible and say, I want to miss no more than 10% of the days that I'm supposed to work. In that context, having more pain than 80% of people maybe is not so important because really what you want to know is, can I function? Now, it may so happen that the score on the promise scale would improve as you work toward that goal. But to me, those those specific patient-specific, person-specific goals related to function are really the most powerful and, and helpful. So, for example, if one of Tommy's goals is to be able to walk his daughter down the aisle one day, From Dr. Buckner's point of view, that goal will be tremendously informative in determining, ultimately, Tommy's health-related quality of life and the strategies for optimizing treatment and self-care practices. But as Dr. Fisher's about to point out, a patient's ability to adapt to new circumstances sounds helpful and can be, but it can also pose a major challenge to progress. One thing that is very disappointing about quality of life is that you have the adaptation of the patient. So I always give these car examples. You have a new Tesla. For the first three weeks, you're exhilarated. Oh, it's fantastic. It can do this. It can do this and this. And then after three weeks, you're used to it and it's just your car. And this happens too when you measure health-related quality of life with new treatments. People adapt and say, okay, this is the standard now. And only some of the very old patients remember. We have one of our very old long-term inhibitor patients who had his first shot of Hemlibra and he started to cry. And then he proceeded to say that he was so glad that the young children could use this. You know, but the young children think it's normal. <laughs> so that is, that is really the pitfall, I think, for health-related quality of life. This response shift, as it's called, is not our friend. As we start to bring this discussion to a close, let's return to the big unanswered question that we first addressed at the top of the episode. Is the goal for people with hemophilia to have completely normal joints and musculoskeletal health? Is that what we're seeking? And if so, what do we need to do to get from here to there? The biggest morbidity of hemophilia is chronic pain. So to not have that and to not have reasonable activity limited because of hemophilic arthropathy or or the results of bleeding, I think are all the tools we're talking about. We're talking about imaging, we're talking about joint physical exams, gait assessments, bone mineralization, bone and synovial biomarkers. It's the whole picture going along. And then is the holy grail that we have no damage? Well, one problem that concerns me is that people with hemophilia who get very good prophylaxis but get one normal orthopedic injury, skiing, falling, tripping on ice, often have a poor result and they have chronic pain and surgery and and some damage from that one episode. We cannot 
uh, prevent them from falling. We can't prevent the slip on the ice, but maybe we can do more research into what does it take to heal an acute uh, joint injury. Maybe these people need to be super treated. Maybe we need factor rates of 200% rather than 100% during that initial surgery and, and follow-up. We need to research how can we bring their outcome the same as the background population without hemophilia. So I think the holy grail is a joint outcome that matches the background population because I certainly don't have perfect joints and I, I can't expect someone with hemophilia my age will have perfect joints either, but to take away the, the extra damage of hemophilia. The, the, the ultimate goal is function, is that you are able to do what you want to do. Of course, not everyone can climb Mount Everest, but uh, to do what you want to do without chronic pain and, and having to worry about hemophilia all the time. Perfect joint health for people with hemophilia, it seems, is not and should not be the goal. Joint health that matches that of the general population without hemophilia at a particular given age, on the other hand, is a goal worth striving toward, and one that ongoing research into imaging, biomarkers, gait assessment, and other monitoring and detection strategies should help us get closer and closer to realizing with each passing year. In the meantime, Stretch, strengthen, get some sunshine, and sure, maybe even have a glass of milk now and again. Why not? I want to thank this episode's guests, Dr. Suchitra Acharya, Dr. Beth Warren, Dr. Tyler Buckner, Dr. Annette Vondragalski, Dr. Amy Dunn, Dr. Andrea Doria, patient contributor Tommy Russomano, and Drs. Marilyn Manko-Johnson and Cataline Fisher, who served as advisors on this episode as well. Thank you to Global Hemophilia Report's senior advisor, Dr. Donna DiMichele, and to our featured advertiser, Sanofi. For a list of links to learn more about some of the most critical research into joint and bone health that's happening right now, take a look at the program notes for this episode in your podcast player, or visit this episode's webpage on bloodstreammedia.com. Episode 5 of the Global Hemophilia Report goes live on Thursday, June 16th, and the topic is the intersection of hemophilia and mental health for young adults and adolescents. There is much to discuss, and it's sure to be another great episode. So subscribe to the Global Hemophilia Report podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to have that episode delivered directly to you the moment it goes live and share this episode with friends or colleagues in the field. You'll find the Global Hemophilia Report's social media pages on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thank you to our producer, Keith Korneluk, our editor, Jose Miguel Baez, graphic designer, Christina Newhard, creative director, Joshua Sterling Bragg, and executive producers, Amy Board, Rob Bradford, and Ryan Geelan. My name is Patrick James Lynch, and you've been listening to the Global Hemophilia Report. Until next time. Did you know that nearly 80% of bleeds in hemophilia occur in the joints? Joint bleeds are the most common type of bleed and can cause lasting damage as well as increase the risk of recurrent bleeds. Sanofi is committed to breaking barriers for patients, including providing resources and education to support joint health. Visit hemejointhealth.com to see how routine, objective assessment might benefit patients' joint health for the long term. Again, that's heme, as in H-E-M, jointhealth.com. 
This site is intended for U.S. healthcare professionals.